In his wonderful book, uh, Good Living Street, The Fortunes of My Viennese Family, Tim Boney Haley, in his introduction, paints a wonderful image of um, the Galia family, refugees from Europe, coming to Sydney and squashing these extraordinary elite apartment um, materials, the furnishings and all the other objects, into their small flat. And I just quote him here. For over 30 years, while the flat in Cremorne was home to the Galias, there was no comparable apartment in New York, Zurich or London, Budapest or Prague, nor for that matter was there one in Vienna itself. The flat's contents were a removalist's triumph, one of the great pieces of Fiandesiecle Vienna transported to Botany Bay. And he adds, adults who visited the flat remember it as claustrophobic because the rooms were so full. And I just thought it's a great book, but that image of this, these extraordinary um, high bourgeois, elite um, examples of Viennese modernism coming out and being fitted into this small flat. In my lecture today, I'd like to consider another triumph of removalism on a more modest scale, but which brought to Australia works of art that embody the spirit of Viennese art and design from this golden age of modernism. And I'm speaking, of course, of the Duldig Studio in Melbourne, created by two emigre artists and designers from Vienna, Karl and Slava Duldig. And I intend, as we'll mention, to highlight the extent to which Karl Duldig's experiences in Vienna as an art student and sculptor, from the period particularly of the 1920s and 30s, intersect and in some ways illuminate some of the major themes in this current marvellous exhibition. And I show you here Slava Duldig sitting in her apartment in Vienna from about 1931, and the contents of that apartment transported now to the current museum studio in Malvern. And you can see... Um, uh, many of the features have safely come out here, including this rather wonderful lamp, which I thought um, is a rather beautiful um, comparison to that fabulous Otto Wagner. Um, as you come into that exhibition, you have this wonderful moment where you see the Viennese artists and designers embracing modernity, new materials and things like the wonders of electricity. And you get that same sense in which um, the Duldigs and Slava, as I'll just quote to you from this rather exquisite little history recently written by Helen Kiddle, she notes that Slava had used royalties earned from her umbrella. Slava is also an inventor and she creates the fold, um, foldable umbrella. And with the money from that patent, she commissioned furniture for their marital apartment from the firm of Sigmund Jarret. Slava collaborated with an architect from the firm to ensure that the furniture met her design expectations. But she also did things like, oh, oh sorry, add particular trim to parts so that the um, uh, leather trim on the handles of the lamps matched the chairs and in turn, even the little sort of keyholes for the bookcases. They all came together in this wonderful, modest but total work of art. And I show you here another shot again to link in with some of these much more um, high uh, architectural um, masterworks. The uh, Wagner here, the store from the Postal Savings Bank, that fabulous checkerboard chair from uh, Colin Moser, and up here again, these organic yet abstract textiles, which Matthew talked about so um, well this morning. But you can see here in, the, in this Duldig sitting room, 
uh, again, some of these are sort of a modest reworking with almost a slightly Japanesey look in the um, works. And in the bedroom, of course, of the original apartment, you had them using Wiener Wegstarter fabric, this butterfly silk was across the bed, and pieces of that still remain in the um, museum today. And as you know, the Wiener Werkstatt is this famous Viennese um, uh, firm, the Viennese Workshops, established in 1903. And we have this idea of a community of visual artists, architects, artists and designers working together to produce design that would be available for a wider public. So it's this other progressive and very accessible form of well-designed um, works of art. It has comparable um, movements, of course, in London and Paris and Munich at this time, but there's a particular vitality about the Wiener Werkstatter, and I think this beautiful little design with its little fabulous printed text along the base sums it up. I also wanted to show you, after having a look at some of these wonderful textiles, here is Slava with her paintbrush, uh, looking fabulous in this fabulous checkered uh, dress with a bandeau and smart shoes. We have, of course, some examples of the uh, secession fabrics and costumes, including things like this little Wiener beaded bag. And, of course, there is a beaded bag in the Duldig studio as well. So there's a whole component of the um, uh, clothing of Slava in particular, which provides a nice uh, parallel to the exhibition. And just to talk about Slava and Karl Duldig, I felt walking around the exhibition, I saw these wonderful, um, intense, passionate, artistic, very self-conscious faces of the Viennese artists, designers and architects, that Karl here is a young man of 20, and Slava in this beautiful self-portrait fit so well alongside Egon Schiele, or here this wonderful Klimt portrait of Joanna Strauder. So you, I think there is a, people always say it's the world of Strauss and it's the world of Freud, that self-consciousness and that rather idiosyncratic, um, very direct intensity of the portrait of this time, I think we find reflected in the work of the youthful student, Karl and Slava. So who are they? They are artists who... Um, are working, uh, training in Vienna in the 20s, living in the 30s, and then, of course, as emigres coming out to Australia. The, both artists themselves actually um, originally came from uh, if, what is um, once upon Galicia, now in Poland, and I can't pronounce it very well. It's Pschermel. And uh, they were the Duldigs, one of the five leading families, Jewish families in this um, city. It's the third leading city in Galicia. So it's um, an important uh, ancient Roman city and then a major military hub during the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, they, the family decided to move to Vienna in um, uh, 1914. And uh, there, Carl's uh, parents, uh, Marcus uh, Duldig, he um, sets up a haberdashery uh, firm. They also had property in this particular little uh, image of the city. That actually is a Duldig residential block owned by members of the wider family across a number of uncles and aunts. 
and they again had apartment blocks. So after the World War One, when there was great uh, trauma and a lot of um, financial crisis, the Duldig family managed to weather it fairly well. The children of the three sons, two went on to university where they became barristers, and Marcus Duldig is said to have claimed, I have two decent sons and one who is an artist. <laughs> and the one who is an artist, of course, is here. Carl, and with his fellow student Slava, also from Galicia, and her family had moved to Vienna, and they um, gain entry to the School of Arts and Crafts of what by 19, um, the 1920s is the former Imperial and Royal Museum of Arts and Craft, the Kunstgewerbeschule, and they are assigned to the class of Professor Anton Hanak. And here we have Hanak's class. There he is, sitting amongst his students. There's Karl, there's Slava. And um, they are uh, gifted and very able and passionate and energetic students. Um, Hanak himself deserves um, a little bit of an introduction. He's a member, of course, of the secessionist movement, which included, as we've seen, painters, sculptors and architects who dominated Viennese art and design during the first decades of the 20th century. In 1912, Hanek had been appointed professor of sculpture at the very progressive Arts and Crafts School, and he's there working alongside other professors such as Hoffman and Moser. And Matthew talked about this in some detail this morning, so I won't elaborate. Hanek um, moved in the same circles as figures such as Klimt and Hoffmann and others, and indeed they collaborated on joint projects and shared the same patrons, those wealthy, highly educated bourgeoisie who wanted to be involved in what they recognised as groundbreaking art and ideas. And I show you here the Klimt portrait of Margareta Stonbara Wittgenstein. She is the sister of the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, and she's the subject, of course, of this very famous Klimt portrait of 1905. It was a wedding gift by the artist. But we can compare it to Hanek's portrait, also known as garment figure, but it is Margareta. And it's interesting that a contemporary at the time wrote, Klimt is the blinding light, but Hanek is the flame. And that was that sense in which while Klimt is this wonderful um, design and surfaces and decoration, there's this monumentality that Hanek brings to his sculptural form and vision. Hanek also worked with um, and was a close friend of Joseph Hoffman. Hoffman later said of Hanek, he was distinguished as no one single thing, not by a tree, but by a forest. And you did have this extent to which he worked across a range of media and a range of practices. He, here you see um, the Hoffman um, pavilion for the World Exhibition in Rome of 1911, and Hanek has produced the sculptural um, uh, facade uh, uh, decoration, architectural decoration. And, of course, this is one of the great um, features of Viennese art and design, this belief in the total work of art in which architecture and sculpture and art come together, you have here Klimt's great allegory of sculpture. It's not only the freestanding figure, it's also jewellery and decoration, and of course it's architectural sculpture. And you find something like the great secession building. It's ornamented, it's, it's, it's not, it's both a form and it's a surface. 
And so you have this decoration, this great idea of often uh, um, parallel or very um, um, uh, symmetrical um, pairing and play of various elements. This, of course, I'm talking about the years coming up to uh, the World War I, and we have um, a disaster occurring for Austria between 1914, or the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, between 1914 and 1918. By um, the end of the war, the empire has been totally dismantled and an Austrian republic is declared with merely six million um, population. And Hunnick's work, The Last Man of 1917, could be said to sum up in many ways this sense of the end of the world as they knew it. So many artists are killed or lost. But in fact, as we know from the exhibition, the power and richness and um, physical presence of art in Vienna meant that between the wars, going on from World War I, the art movement survives and indeed flourishes in the 20s and 30s. And it was through enlightened teachers such as Hunnick at the um, Arts and Crafts School that this artistic legacy of secession and Wiener was passed on to the generation which is of Karl and Slava Duldig. I just show you here very early work by Karl Duldig. He just picked up a piece of plaster in Hunnick's studio, carved this little Adam and Eve, and he's based his Adam on a figure by Hunnick. It's a tribute to his master. And uh, Hunnick appreciated that very much. You can see Carl goes on to use this type of um, sculpture that is both architectural in its, in its purposes and um, uh, even his great work, which is in this exhibition, his marble mask, which you see very much as a standalone figure. Um, Peter Stasny has drawn parallels to the um, influence or the existence at the same time of mask-like elements being used in architectural decoration. Of course, it's not only architectural sculpture that is, can be seen to influence this really iconic work in his career. We see the idea of the mask and the whole rediscovery of ancient Greece and a sort of a decorative, colouristic ancient Greece sort of following on Schliemann's discoveries. And, of course, the whole wonderful early exhibition posters for Secession had these fabulous masks with Klimt. And then, of course, in the really the expressionist and uh, impact of the fauves, very coloristic thing, the mask continues as a great theme. And so we see it really summed up in this work. The important thing about Hanak, he believed in direct carving, not to be doing um, preliminary sketches. So the very useful uh, Duldig just carved directly, fabulous back of the work, which you can see in the exhibition. And there's his signature, 1921. So this is the first year of his um, training as an art student. The work goes on to be shown in various exhibitions representing the, um, the faculty. Here's another important work, the kneeling figure. Again, this represented the, the school of the Jubilee Exhibition in 1929. So Carl Dulig very swiftly is picked out as a particularly gifted and able artist. And I just show you, comparing it to another work by Hunnick, this sort of neoclassical moment of the 20s, a return to order, which we see here with a, a Viennese overlay. Another work, these marvellously, the energy of the figures. They were admired very much at the time, though, for retaining the content, contour of the stone. They were seen to be very much true, working the material to bring out the form. This importance of truth to materials is one of Hunnick's particular... Um, uh, mantras. 
And I just quickly want to show you these exquisite works carved. They're called steatites. They're sort of soapstone, coloured, very soft stone, which he produces these marvellous figures, rather like Greek caryatids, in which the idea of ornament is through the material rather than applied. It's these fabulous coloured figures. They're tiny, beautiful, exquisite little forms, but very much retaining a sense of a sort of an ancient deity in some way. And I just show you here, um, Hunnick's studio again, the importance of these figures, often allegory. Here's the Burning Man or Venus. We still play upon the great traditions. Here's the portrait of Margareta. And again, this um, very much a sort of a, a classicising element. And we find, if we look at the works of Karl or his Slava, one of her sculptures, or then up against a Egon Schiller, that fascination with the female form throughout early 20th century, particularly in Vienna, where it takes on overtones of both erotic exploration and the sensual world, but also, in Karl's case, follows down this idea of a neoclassical sort of um, purity. Karl talks about his life in the um, studio of Hanak. I've just mentioned it very quickly because um, I know we're running a bit short of time. He talks about the many students from all over the world, Uruguay, Russia, Poland, Germany. He notes Hanek loved music and often played the guitar, and we all sang along to the popular arias from opera and musical comedy. I made the coffee, and at the end of an important commission, we would all celebrate with a party. Hanek was a short man with a flowing beard, red hair, and always wore a long white coat to work. He was highly respected in Vienna. He was a friend and colleague of the famous architect, Josef Hoffmann. And I just show you that idea of the creative interplay between them. Here is Duldig's portrait of Sepp Baumgarten. Here's the photograph of his fellow artist. Here's Baumgarten's portrait of Anton Hanek. And here's Duldig's wonderful clay portrait of Hanek as well, where it slips between a portrait and a mask. And just the closeness of them here. This is, uh, of course, The Burning Man, a book. Um, Hanek has inscribed a dedication to Duldig, and he um, later wrote, he is the best sculptor in Austria for 50 years. This is Hanek's um, appraisal of Duldig. Now, very swiftly, uh, Karl went on to the academy for a while. He was taught far more the idea of the life class and the casting and then the final work. And here we have him graduating, 33, and he goes on to be an important sculptor in Vienna. And then, of course, we have the arrival of the Nazis. And with many other Jewish artists, he flees, he and his family. By this time, his daughter, Eva, is with them. And they flee down that route through China to Singapore. And then eventually, they're deported to Australia. And they end up in Tatura, 1941. And look at this. It's Karl Dulig, a man in his 40s, with his artist, creative wife, and small child in the back blocks of Victoria. And you can see, absolutely embodies the spirit and artistic skills and vision of Vienna. I put up this wonderful Sheila from the show. And now, just very quickly, I show this work he produced. They went on, Karl and Slava both become art teachers. And I show you a work produced in the 1960s. It's his Magna Mater, and he produced it from a tree, from the Mentone Grammar, where he was teaching was exhibited in the, oh, in the uh, Mildura Sculpture Triennial and eventually purchased by the NGV. And it's this figure of the woman and child. But if we look back, 
This is the Magna Mater of um, Anton Hanek, produced while Karl and Slava were both students. We have that image of the mother and the child. He carries a particular vocabulary, both visual and formal, with him to Australia. And I'll just show you quickly another one of those earlier classical ones, the more elongated ones in the 30s, and then, of course, the beautiful echo from the 1970s. Very briefly now, the studio itself, wonderful little microcosm of Vienna in Malvern, and the works, he changes his material in Australia, he adopts terracotta far more, but many other forms. Here's his studio, and there it was in Vienna, and he constantly has his great Viennese pieces around him. The house itself, several rooms with these fabulous furnishings, and at the moment, here is Eva, who fled from Europe to Australia. She has been the curator of this current exhibition, the Dull Digs in Vienna. There she's outside the house with a little, little plaque make, announcing it as a public museum. And so I hope that when you look at the wonderful mask in this exhibition, you recognise that it is just the tip of the iceberg, the iceberg that is the Dull Dig Studio, its collection and archive. Thank you.